You are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is produced by Crawlspace Media. Welcome back to True Crime Twins. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you for listening. How are you doing tonight, Melina? I'm doing good. I can't complain. I sprained my ankle last week and I can walk again. That is phenomenal. Is there been anything that you can sort of credit to your quick and someone even say miraculous recovery? I did the classic um, RICE, I believe that the acronym is. It's um, rest, ice, compress, and elevate. That's what you do for muscle sprains. That's like a nursing um, little code to remember. But also I tried CBD lotion and fantastic stuff. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about something that I think is pretty cool and important to talk about. It regards cold cases and it regards three specific cases that happen in close proximity to each other, like in terms of location and in time. And it all happened in Hartford, Connecticut. And We have a special guest on today. It's my friend, Tori Murphy. She recently got her master's degree of criminal justice from University of New Haven, which is very impressive, I think. It's quite a prestigious program, right, Chloe? It's very well known for its criminal justice program. So she actually brought these cases to our attention. So we thought it would be great for her to come on and talk about it with her unique perspective. And, you know, she got a lot of research. So hello, Tori. Hello. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's really nice to have you here. I I kind of never thought that we would be in this, you know, situation from I'm thinking about back in the day when we met um, at my very first job out of college at um, at that group home. Yep. So uh, me and Melina were mental health counselors for, you know, adolescents 11 to 17. We uh, we were work wives. We uh, held down the house. We dealt with some pretty harsh things and you went on to you know do the nursing route and I kind of got a little bit angry at the stuff I saw and I wanted to do a little bit more hands-on and you know criminal justice kind of was my future so yeah you were always super into it yeah I really and that's that's something that we actually you know got along with we bonded about that I think pretty quickly and not only that but like you said we were co-counselors and we worked basically all of our shifts together and we worked evenings when there wasn't any, you know, supervision. Our, um, you know, we didn't have, we were the bosses and we were just like in charge of the like five children that had like mental health issues. It was always just very crazy and unpredictable. It really was. It really was. Uh, but I would, you know, I don't regret it because it really made me, I think, who I am today. Because I, I mean, I wish we could, you know, disclose, but obviously HIPAA. But uh, yeah. yeah, we we uh, we went through some things together. Probably going to be forever friends because of that, yeah. And I'm happy to hear that for sure. I feel the same way, Tori. Yeah, I, I really, I feel like I could talk to you in like five years and it would just be like yesterday, but let's not make it five years, obviously. Oh, that's cute, you guys. Yeah, Chloe feels left out. Super left out. <laughs> so, Tori, would you like to maybe tell us a little bit about the research that you've been doing? Yeah, so, um, you know, I took a cold case uh, class uh, with a retired homicide detective at University of New Haven, and I also took a death investigations class. And during one of the courses, actually, we got to work on cold cases in Connecticut. And, um, you know, I always found interest in, you know, doing my little online research with, you know, the resources I had. And 
Uh, it started off with the, you know, Connecticut.gov website of cold cases. I uh, took my pen and paper and started listing some stuff. And I wanted to kind of organize it where I wasn't looking at, you know, all over Connecticut. So I started to just look at Hartford cases. Um, what interested me was the amount of women that were uh, murdered and, you know, still no one knows who did it. Um, so basically, I started looking up names. And what's interesting about the Connecticut website, too, is that it actually didn't have all the people that were actually murdered on it, which kind of irked me a little bit. But, you know, that's aside the point. Um, so basically I, you know, I, like I said, I could go on for hours about all the, all the terrible things I read, but what intrigued me about, you know, LaDawn Roberts, uh, 28 years old, uh, Diana Ferris, 35 years old, and Tawana Smith, 29 years old, was the fact that, you know, one was 1996, one was 1997, and one was 1999. And, uh, you know, using my resources, I, I used, uh, you know, Google Maps. I looked at where the location was. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't really look at um, a Hartford map. I actually wanted to kind of blow up a map of Hartford and kind of like red dot where all these were located. But I realized that they're all within three minutes from each other, um, which was very shocking, upsetting. Um, and then I learned about, you know, the rumors of them being prostitutes. And what irked me about that was, you know, the fact that, so basically Hartford has a huge history with prostitutes. Um, you know, there's newspaper articles from the eighties, um, from the early nineties, basically saying how the community hates having prostitutes and how it's bringing in a bad neighborhood, bad vibes to Hartford. And it basically just seemed like the town itself or the, the people in power of those places just didn't want prostitution there. So with that said, it makes me believe that if a prostitute was murdered, it was nothing, it wasn't something that they were really, it wasn't like John Bonet Ramsey, you know, it was, you know, a woman who, you know, if you read some of these articles too, it, it's brutal how they explain who these pr people were, you know, they say they got their children removed, they, you know, they had a couple of felonies, uh, not felonies, you know, petty uh, misdemeanors, but, you know, as working in mental health, we know that Drug users, you know, there's a background behind someone who's an ad addict. You know, either they had something growing up, maybe they're sexually abused as a child, uh, maybe they have a mental health uh, illness. So basically, it irked me that they were making these victims bad people for, you know, perhaps just having the wrong path and getting caught up in the wrong situation. But none of them were like bad people. Um, but yeah, so I just want to give a little background about Hartford because um, prostitution was so relevant and all over the place. It was, it was just, I just don't think that the police had enough time and focus to really look for who was doing that. And, you know, the family sometimes would chime in, but it just seemed like, you know, it was a impoverished place, it was, it was a poor minority community Um so, yeah, so anyone that has gone, has a background in, you know, our past history of Connecticut knows that, you know, the 80s and the early 90s, things were not as great as they are scientifically advanced with DNA and whatnot we have today. So, yeah, so basically I just wanted to, you know, when I go through this, you know, I'm not trying to make any cop who worked the 
that time feel like they weren't doing their job because, you know, it's always good to understand the situation around that. And, you know, there was a huge drug epidemic. Um, so people just wanted to be hard on crime. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to start going into case uh, number one. We're going to start talking about LaDawn Roberts. Um, she was 28 years old at the time. Uh, she was found murdered on June 20th, 1999. And she was uh, found at 272 Garden Street. And that's going to be a important, important street to go over uh, when I go through another case. Um, she was also five months pregnant. And, you know, as someone who's never had a kid, I kind of go back in my, maybe Chloe, you could help me out here. At five months pregnant, you're pretty visible as a pregnant woman, correct? It depends on the woman. Um, there's some factors that make someone more likely to be bigger or to show more. If it's your first baby, you're more likely to be small. Okay. I got away with hiding it uh, probably until five months. That's when I could no longer conceal it with clothing. She was like skinny the day she gave birth. So. <laughs> you're one of those. Yeah. So yeah, she was five months pregnant. I just wanted to ask because I, I kind of thought to myself, I wonder if it was to the point where whoever murdered her knew that originally and kind of targeted her because of that or if it was like oh I didn't know but all three women I mean you guys seen the pictures um from the uh, cold case card set that they're all pretty slim women so it's not like you know you wouldn't know if they were pregnant but her body was found uh, badly beaten uh found on the porch of abandoned house and at the time abandoned houses which they considered drug dens at the time were really all over the place um around this neighborhood um, but the body was found at 7.30 a.m. Um, the anonymous caller called in, which till this day, the anonymous caller uh, has never um, showed themselves, uh, which, you know, is unfortunate. And hopefully they'll hear this and maybe feel a little bit more comfortable talking about it. But, you know, at that time, who knows what retaliation or fear that person felt. But the cause of death was a blow to a head. And like I said, it said she was a prostitute. Um, the off autopsy revealed that her skull was crushed, jaw broken, and she had cuts on her neck and chest. You know, she actually was one of the cases where her mother, till this day, is really eager to find out, you know, who murdered her daughter, which I, I think is great. Um, you know, she I think she was ruthless to the police department, but <laughs> sometimes you have to be. So that's going to take us to Diana Ferris. Um, she was found dead on 477 Garden Street. So we're going from 272 Garden Street to 477 Garden Street, and we're looking at a difference in uh, three years. And as we know, people who, you know, could be serial killers, you know, it could be, you know, three years between their next killing, a month between their next killing. But what I found interesting about these two is not only did they live that close, she was also five months pregnant. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of stood out for me because – it's one thing that, you know, oh, they're both five months, but they live so close to each other that, you know, if someone was someone who knew Hartford and knew the area, you know, Garden Street was known for, you know, sex work, drug users, and it was a great place to find someone to target and murder, unfortunately. Um, but she was also alleged to be a drug user. Um, now, her death was a little bit different in a sense that she was strangled by a telephone cord. Uh, the telephone cord was left at the scene and there was also a, a pillowcase on top of her head, which is kind of odd because, you know, if you already strangled someone, 
why put a pillowcase over her head? So maybe it was kind of one of those things where uh, sometimes if people kill someone that they know, they uh, like to cover them uh, because they feel guilty afterwards. Uh, that's why I learned, you know, in my courses, I don't know if that's the real truth, but I don't know if there's any identity. Uh, I, what is, what is that channel called? The ID channel, uh, investigation uh, discovery. Her brother-in-law is actually a huge guy on that show. William Phelps. If you guys want to Google him, you'll probably know who he is, but he's a journalist. He's written multiple books. And I, I was very interested to find out like this guy that I watched on TV all the time was actually kind of related to this woman. And that's actually why he went into, you know, want to, you know, research serial killers and whatnot. So unfortunately those two cases still, they do not know um, who could have been connected to it. And we're going to go to our next case, uh, Tawana Smith. Now, this is a year after LaDawn. This is 1997. Um, she was 29 years old. This body was found October 20th, 1997 at 20 Ashley Street. Now, I had a thought where I was like, man, I wonder if she lived close to them. So once again, I used, you know, Google Maps, put in Ashley Street, and it says five minutes away. So, you know, I wouldn't even be surprised if these women knew each other, Um but once again, she was rumored to be a convicted prostitute. And I say rumored because uh, my research led me to the Hartford Current actually apologizing later, uh, I think in the 2000s, for basically calling a bunch of women prostitutes who were murdered and their family must have reached out and they did retract a bunch of statements. So I always wonder, you know, if these girls or women were drug addicts who were just in an area where prostitutes were or if they actually were prostitutes. Um, but just like LaDawn, it, yeah, it's hard to say, but just like LaDawn, she also had stab wounds on her neck and chest. Um, and I think she also, well, this is weird because they say that she may have been sexually assaulted, which irks me because I don't know if they even did a rape, uh, kit because if you're an alleged prostitute, why would someone even test you, you know, because they're thinking, oh, who knows? So she was found on the base of a stairwell at a board and abandoned house. Um, like I said, these abandoned houses were, you know, all over the place at this time. And they called it a drug den and she had stab wounds on her hands. So they think that she was fighting for her life. These three, for some reason, really, really just made me feel like there might be something going on bigger to this. Um, and I know that you guys had sent you guys a little bit of, uh, you know, what I was going to talk about. And uh, I wanted to know what you guys thought about it. Well, my first question is, when you were doing your research online, did you find other people making these connections? Or did you sort of come and make these all on your own? Yeah, so actually, in the early 2000s, uh, they were connecting about 11 uh, murders. and after doing so much research, a lot of those murders ended up coming like uh, there was a um, transgendered uh, woman who they thought was connected because I think she was also killed on Garden Street. And I remember being like, oh, man, like maybe there's something here. And I think it was stab wounds to the neck and chest as well. But later they actually caught the people and it was actually two women, um, two young women killed them. So that was kind of interesting because it kind of ruled that one out. And then over time, you know, they would convict a couple people and 
I mean, man, I can't even express how many sex offenders were in the area at the time, but um, my suspect list was so large at first. (laughs) And eventually that list of 11 turned to like a list of four that was still, you know, uh, cold cases. And, you know, I I didn't know if I wanted to bring, you know, Leah Upridge involved in this, but, you know, Leah Upridge was also murdered in uh, 1996. And, you know, she was in the same area, basically. And someone was basically trying to steal her in a car and she jumped out and they think that her, uh, her hand was either stuck in a seatbelt or she was holding onto the door, but he dragged her and the car going like 60 miles per hour for like two miles. It's like one of the biggest crime scenes in Hartford. And what's weird about that is that you would think there'd be a lot of DNA if someone was inside of a car, but you know, I understand this is something I have to, you know, DNA testing and stuff, as much as people think it's very easy, it's very costly. It's very, you know, it's not just a snap of the fingers. So as much as I want all this stuff to happen, I understand that, like, you can't just ask them to do this. But uh, I would wonder if all these cases were, you know, reviewed. I mean, I wish I could review all the, you know, uh, case files that the police have. But I just wonder if there's any DNA left at the scene, because they all seem very brutal and personable. So you'd think, especially if a, if a woman has scratch marks from fighting her, whoever away she might have a skin of his underneath her fingernails it's possible too that he met his victims as you know clients like he was a john so semen yes could also be very relevant and you know you're talking about how these victims were treated like john benet ramsey and yeah. you, that's a, a big overlap and in, in taking criminal justice coursework i've seen that certain things make you more likely to be victimized and working in sex work is listed as one of those factors. Yep. And I think some offenders are savvy enough to know um, that they're more likely to be victimized and people are less likely to care. There was actually a man uh, in Massachusetts, a man from Ware, Massachusetts, Arthur Salisbury, who that was his exact MO. He strategically picked up women that were heroin addicts, that were prostitutes, and then would sexually assault and attack them, uh, knowing that people would be less likely to believe them, choosing people that had compromised credibility. But she also said that they're not proven necessarily to be prostitutes. They were thought to be prostitutes, which is why these investigations might have been compromised. Like, I bet they didn't even save any DNA. Like, I was, when you said that, I was thinking about it. I'm like, I bet that they half-assed it. Well, the police did because, I mean, and and I appreciate not wanting to criticize the police. We have no idea what they went through. We don't know what it's like from their perspective at all. But I think kind of the overarching theme that we're discussing here is it's not just the media and the general public that's less likely to put in time, effort, resources. Historically, there's been a pattern where certain people get more attention than others. So it it, it all kind of ties together. Yeah, I think that it's evident. I'm sure you guys remember the Long Island girls. There was like a bunch of bodies found. And there were prostitutes, right? There was a Craigslist killings. Yep, yep. And I think that's still unsolved, right? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I actually was looking into it a little bit because what's scary is that, and, you know, we all know that K-9 
Connecticut and New York are very close. So, you know, I had a moment where I said to myself, who knows how many murders happened in Connecticut that were tied to, you know, New York, Long Island. But yeah, what's crazy is that he dumped the bodies like in the same spot and did it for years and no one had any idea. You know, it's like that, that was, that's just sad for all those, all those girls. They actually made a Netflix movie out of it. I got to see that one. Another thing that I just noticed, just kind of going over each case is, you know, we, we see similarities in the MO, like in the way that they were attacked, like the parts of the bodies that were targeted, their age, the pregnancy detail is one that's bothering me a lot. Um, yes. It's hard to believe that's coincidence. Well, it's, 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 it's brutal in the sense that someone was murdering someone knowing that they also had a child. Um, it, the, the neck and chest stabs are are odd. And, you know, when I go over my suspect list, you know, one of my guys who I really have a lot, I just feel like he might've been part of it was because he, um, all of them were beaten and killed in brutal ways, but he did like to stab in the, in the throat and he did like to strangle. So, you know, you can't say that just because two of them were stabbed and one was strangled that they're not connected because, you know, serial killers switch it up all the time. You know, it's it's also sometimes what resources they have at the time. Um, but, I mean, I might as well go into uh, Robert W. White Jr., um, which it took me forever to find his middle initial and the fact that he was a junior. You know, you Google Robert White and pff, there's too many out there. But um, this guy, you know, recently uh, got charged. And if you Google him in Connecticut, it comes up all over the place. But he recently got charged with uh, two of Hartford's cold cases, um, Sherilyn Crawford and Sonia Rivera. Um, But this guy was just one of those people who just kept falling through the fingers of law enforcement. And, you know, I, I, I was upset, but, you know, sex offender registries really didn't come into play until 94, and then they got better in 96 and got better and better. But, you know, you would think that if someone brutally raped someone, you know, took her in his van and she ran away, he wouldn't get, like, a slap on the wrist. But that's kind of how it was back then. Um, You know, he basically... And you know what? I would love to speak to his ex-wife, uh, who's you know still alive. Unfortunately, one of his murders was his girlfriend at the time. But um, he lived in Virginia for a while uh, with his wife. And across from his apartment, right across, was a uh, 17-year-old high school um, graduate. And she was found strangled. Uh, it took years for them to catch him. And... Since he had no prior records and, you know, they thought he was, I guess, not the worst guy, he only got eight years for that murder. Um, So he got released, oh, it got released in 1989. So what's weird about this, though, is that if you look, this is why the internet is rough, um, is that there's so many different stories on when he was serving time, when he was on parole, what he was doing. But basically, during his entirety, he, you know, raped like five women. Um, they all came forward. But we all know how uh, when it goes to court, some of them back down because they don't want to see the, you know, the guy again. So because of that, he didn't really get a lot of jail time. Um, he was on parole a lot. Um, he murdered, um, you know, Sherilyn Crawford in 97. Um, 
And basically, he was called just a serial sex offender. Uh, he told people his name is Jimmy sometimes. He admitted that he loved prostitutes. He loved paying for sex. Um, so after Virginia, he moved to Hartford. And, you know, he would hang out on streets. Uh, Martin Street was where he actually uh, met Crawford, one of the women he murdered. And that was only three minutes from Crawford Street. I mean, from Garden Street, Crawford Street. So basically, if if you think to yourself, this guy met one of the women he killed on Martin Street, which is three minutes away from Garden Street, and that was in 97, and we have, you know, all of the murders that we were just discussing in, in around that time, the chances of him running into the other girls is, is so high, you know? And with each of his victims that he actually is serving time for, the four victims... They all had their faces bashed in with blunt, blunt objects. So he clearly, you know, didn't have self-control. And he did talk in detail about these murders. He said that, you know, uh, when it came to Crawford, he snapped. He grabbed a knife nearby, uh, slit her throat, uh, stabbing her until the knife broke. And then he grabbed a hammer and beat her. Um, which, you know, Jesus. Uh, so she- Talk about over. Yeah, yeah. Um, so her body was found a couple days later on Martin, Martin Street, and basically they couldn't really identify her face. They had to uh, identify her through fingerprints. Um, so they used the term bludgeon to death on that one. Um, and she was, you know, just a point of how bad Hartford was. Uh, she was their 13th murder, murder of that year. So um, Hartford definitely had a, a hell of a problem in the 90s. But yeah, so her apartment was very close to where all the other murders were. Um, and she lived there for 10 years. So if someone was stalking her, you know, they knew that she was coming there every day. And, you know, he also said with Sonia River that he was paying to have sex with her, which who knows if that's even true. And, you know, I hate to, he's not an attractive guy. Uh, his left eye, he has a lazy eye. He's just not. And you know what? It's unfortunate, but a lot of these guys, you know, are usually you know, overweight or they're, you know, just someone that might not get attention from girls. But with her, he said he snapped, grabbed a brick and hit her over the head um, as many as 15 times. Um, so once again, you know, brutally bludgeoning her in the head. And then when we go to, you know, his first killing of Robertson, he said that he tried to rape her and she resisted and he bashed her head into the sidewalk. Um so he definitely had a, a, a liking for really hurting heads for some reason. He is now in prison, thank, thank goodness. But it's odd to know that during all this time, he, you know, if you read his track, it's like, you know, in and out of prison. You would just think that, you know, after that murder, if he raped someone after that nine year prison term, that he would be put away. But who knows? Maybe he had a good lawyer. Slippery guy, yeah. you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, his uh, Sawari was the oldest one. She was 60 and that was his girlfriend at the time. And, you know, that actually led to everything coming to play. Basically, um, he choked her and cut her and stabbed her neck with a knife, um, which, you know, once again, here's him using the knife to stab a neck um, after argument. And basically it led him to getting charged. And uh, for whatever reason, um police were pressing him and he admitted to another murder, another murder. And then it came to four murders. And I actually thought about um, 
finding out where he is and, and writing him a letter because he seems like one of those people who would maybe confess to more murders at this point because he's serving 300 years. So it's like, at this point, you know, what do you have to lose? But I just think if he got away so sly, you know, and he obviously liked women who could be around the area, prostitution or not, I mean, it just seems like it was easy prey. Um, And, you know, he wasn't scared. He wasn't hiding the bodies. You know, some of these serial killers will take the body, drive miles away and throw them, you know, on the side of a highway. He was just leaving them there. So, I mean, if you get away with one murder, you get away with two murders. You know, it's, it's, I'm always someone who believes if you killed four people, I won't be shocked if you killed eight people. You know what I mean? It's just like, um, but yeah, I, uh, it's something about this guy that makes me think if, if DNA was set up and, you know, I just feel like the chances of him being perhaps the perpetrator is just totally high. I agree with you. Um, the overkill aspect of all of these cases, the ones that are unsolved and the ones that are officially linked with him, it's it sounds very, very similar. It sounds like a very angry perpetrator. I would love to know who hurt him, what happened to him, you know, to make him the person that he was. But I guess that's like a conversation for a different time. We're talking about, you know, the people he hurt, not him. No poor him going on for me. But I definitely, when you were talking about it, I had this sort of visceral response that made me feel like that he could be responsible for the first three women that you talked about. But obviously, you know, that doesn't mean anything like a court of law. It's like my intuition says yes, but you obviously brought up so many good points and connections. So I definitely think that he is a very good suspect for those murders. What What's, what's terrible, though, is the more I searched, the more I found so many sex offenders in the area um, that, you know, maybe had murdered one woman around the time or um, sexually assaulted another. And, you know, that had led me to the unfortunate circumstances of the former Hartford police officer, Julio J. Camacho. So this guy was an officer from 1988 to 1998, which is right around the time that all these murders we're looking at happened. You know, he, um, he was five foot four. And I, I got to say that because the things he did to these girls, you know, you laugh because you think to yourself, you know, a five foot four, you know, and I hate to be a little bit of an asshole, but, you know, you get pissed off that these guys take advantage of these women. And uh, anyways, this guy really gets me mad. But basically, <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever watched that docuseries. Uh, I think Showtime put it out, Murder by the Bayou. Uh, no, I don't think I have. Uh, oh, super good. You got to check it out. But basically it goes into, um, I don't know if it was the 80s or 90s, but uh, police officers, you know, um, taking advantage of uh, imprisoned prostitutes and murdering a bunch and getting away with it, basically. And it kind of reminded me of that because this guy, uh, first of all, he was fired within his first year um, for beating his wife. Um, By the way, this guy has four wives, uh, four ex-wives at this point, which, you know, oh, geez. But after being fired, they actually rehired him, um, which just goes to show you how much domestic violence meant to anyone back then. But uh, he um, and seven other Hartford officers were eventually convicted of sexual misconduct on the duty. Um, This was by 2001. So, you know, a lot had already happened. Um, 
But his girlfriend at the time, which was 96, um, and her daughter, his daughter, which he doesn't, he want. all right, I'll go into that in a second. Anyways, they went missing. And basically, after undercover cops were looking into this guy, and I don't know what they call them. They're like basically an investigative team that were just going into sexual misconduct in Hartford. Um, they went to his house, uh, got a search warrant, and they didn't really connect the him with the girlfriend missing and the daughter missing. Um, so at the, at the house, they find a bunch of books, which is just, you know, what idiots these guys are sometimes, but books on how to murder someone, books on how to get away with murder, books on how to get rid of a corpse. Um, and then a very detailed map of New Jersey. And it's basically like a written outline of a place in New Jersey, like a little dotted, like here's the treasure chest and cops go there and they find Rosita. Uh, well, actually at the time she was just, I think a corpse, uh, a torso, not, not the full body. And it took two years for them to find out which, you know, people were arguing and a lot of articles I was reading that, you know, why did it take this long? But, you know, sometimes when cops are involved with cases, it, it's a little, it's rusty. Um, but it took two years to identify her as Rosita. Um, so once they found out that, they were like, okay, you know, he has all these books in here. But, you know, the problem with that is her body, you know, was in the water. So they couldn't really get factual evidence to, you know, say it was definitely him. And unfortunately, the daughter, who was four at the time, is still missing. Um, and he was a, you know, excuse my language, but he was a dick in um, in this situation because he started saying that, well, I don't know if she's even my daughter. You guys should paternity test her. Like, I mean, he had a bunch of, like I said, he had four wives. He had a bunch of kids, a lot of child support payments. So him wanting to get rid of her isn't shocking. Um, terrible, but not shocking. Um, but yeah, so the the girl the the girlfriend was decapitated and her wrists were cut off. I'm sure maybe in one of his books it said that you know if you do that you get rid of the handprints with the you know the fingerprints and uh, you know a great way to identify someone is through their teeth. So maybe decapitating her was a good way for him to you know stay behind the the lines. But yeah, sorry, I'm I'm going off on this. Uh, chime in if you. No, you know. that's okay. It really scares me that. There are people like this that could be cops. <laughs> yes. Um, so the story gets worse because, uh, you know, women just kept coming out and saying, you know, this as a cop, you know, in uniform, he would uh, pull over and take women off the street and, you know, uh, basically rape them in the back of his car and tell him, you know, you can't do anything. I'm a cop. I'll, you know, I'll do this and de- definitely take advantage of his power. Um, you know, there was one case where he took a woman with her kid and, you know, the kid was like in the car and he basically raped her outside of the car. And, you know, thank God for this woman, because she actually was one who came to court and, you know, told her story. And, you know, like I said, these, you know, they, they, they view these women as prostitutes. And it, it's just sad because these poor women, if the cops are raping you, then who do you tell, you know, but I said to myself, if this guy had the balls to kill this woman, chop her head off and chop her wrist off, what, what, you know, why wouldn't he kill a prostitute or kill a woman that he took from the streets? Like 
he had the access to. So I also wonder with him, who knows if he was connected to any, you know, not only the cases we talk about, but all the other cases that are out there that, you know, we don't have the time to mention right now, but, you know, it's interesting that, and and like, you know, there were seven cops that were involved in police uh, sexual misconduct. So you think to yourself, you know, what was going on, you know, like, and, you know, till this day, I'm sure, you know, no one really wants to talk about or anyone that was a police at that time, what happened within that police department. But there was just a lot of things that really scary. Um, and, you know, it's sad because I'm sure there's a lot of women that were raped that still haven't come forward to this day. Um, and, you know, Connecticut's statute of limitations sucks. I think you have like five years to. Um, what? Yeah, I think Connecticut's one of the worst. I think you have five years to come forward. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're working on trying to change that, but um, we all know that like a lot of people who, who go through trauma, it takes years sometimes for them to come forward. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then they get blamed for it, and they get blamed for it. Yeah, um, especially if a, a lawyer is going to say, "Well, she was, uh, you know, a prostitute, and she, you know, got caught with drugs." Yeah, that's the thing that sucks is that first off, obviously these women aren't rich; they're obviously not wealthy. They might have kids. They're trying to, you know, make ends meet, you know. And then on top of that, if you get a, a, a you know, in trouble for prostitution, I think it's a $2,000 fine, which is always interesting how they find people who already don't have the money to make ends meet. So, you know, the chances of them going back to, you know, sex work or selling drugs isn't shocking. You know, they're just trying to, like, support themselves. So, and then, you know, no one's talking about the guys that are, are, are sleeping with these sex workers, but... I mean, I'm someone who yeah. thinks that sex workers should be protected. That's just me, but no, I I am inclined to agree with that. Um, do you think, Tori, that Officer Julio and the other gentleman that you just said, um, Robert White, do you believe that those two are the most likely suspects? Yes, yes, I would say those two are probably my my main two, just because the other guys, um, not that they're any better, but the other guys, for the most part, were sex offenders. I mean, I don't know if you saw Matthew Johnson that I had mem- uh, mentioned uh, in my little review I sent you guys, but, um, you know, he had murdered three women. Um, so Matthew Johnson was convicted in February of 2004. Um, he had murdered uh, Ida Quinedes. Uh, she was found uh, dead April 2000. Uh, Rosalie Jimenez, uh, April, uh, August, 2000 and Elisa Ford, um, 2001. Um, I mean, at that time it was a little bit later and I think, I don't know, for some reason I just, Robert White just seems like the guy. And, you know, like I said, I really, and I wonder if he would write me back. I wonder if I wrote to him and said, you know what? I mean, that would be a hell of a podcast, but I just feel yeah. like I just feel like if you're in prison and someone writes to you, it's probably like the best day ever. But I just wonder if he would perhaps I don't know, what do you guys think? I mean, four murders, they're kind of all in the same I mean, except for, you know, one of Virginia, but the rest, I mean, they're all in the same area. So it's just like I think that if you wanted someone to say no, don't write someone in prison, you wouldn't be asking to true crime podcast hosts. <laughs> but um, I have a unique experience. I actually 
did write to a murderer. No who, way. I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not going to say his name because oh it's really, I'll, I'll talk to I'll talk to you about it. Um, okay. Me. But okay. I yeah for a, a little while because I I kind of was in a similar position as you. It wasn't um you know a serial killer, but I wanted answers. It was a case that really affected me, and um it's a weird experience because like you said, it is. It is like the best day ever. It's something that's out of their routine to get a letter from some random person that wants mm-hmm. to talk to them. But it it does give you like a bad feeling inside uh. a little <laughs> So just be prepared for that. But I feel like you might be more prepared for that with your background. True, though, because technically you have to give a return address. So it's kind of like, how do you, you know, hide your identification a little bit? Get a um, P.O. box. Yeah, get a P.O. box. <laughs> um, but it's good knowing that he's in prison. Like, there, there's no way he's leaving prison. I mean, I would say if he, you know, had possibility of parole, I'd be like, eh. Um, but he just, he just seemed like such a impulsive person. Um, I mean, clearly he hated women. And you're right. You know what? If anything, it's always good to understand the, you know, suspectology, victimology. It's always understand good to understand the suspect and. Like I said, it was it was like pulling teeth trying to find out about this guy. And, you know, I understand that, you know, in the in the 90s, you know, Internet was developing. There wasn't a lot of people putting notes on on the Internet, but I would love to know his upbringing. Um, You know, I wonder if his parents are still alive, um, what his childhood was like, because, you know, he really. You know, between raping these women and, and and bludgeoning them to death, it's just he was so angry, you know. And, you know, there, ha- there had to be po- a possible reason for that. You know, once again, not defending him because, you know, God only knows. But it, it, he just he just seems like the, li- the most likely suspect for this. But the cop being on duty and, you know, being undercover technically with, you know, wearing the suit. I just think he could have murdered people and, and, and known how to get away with it. You know, and if his buddies were also sexually assaulting them who knows you know what happened i mean it, god only knows maybe they punched a prostitute one night and she dies and they look at each other and they say oh you know but you know i don't want to i don't want to go into that too much but you just never know what happened at the time but um there were some other suspects you know that i was looking at but like i said they were just maybe like a one time offense uh you know one guy had murdered someone and then dropped her body, body in rhode island and that was like the only case that was really um someone you know leaving to go to rhode island but you just never know how many people could have drifted in states elsewhere i mean you know one of my classes we talked about uh, you know truck drivers and you know like you're talking about like prostitutes are easy targets uh lot lizards they call them or sex workers who worked in um the truck uh lots uh you know what do they call when they the trucks like go to sleep at night and they have those giant parking lots for them um a lot of sex workers um go there and a lot of these you know lot lizards they call them were murdered and unfortunately it took years for them to be solved but these guys were truck drivers who would travel, you know, across jurisdictions. So, you know, what better way to get away with murder? You pick up someone in Connecticut, you drop them off in Virginia, you know? And, um, yeah, it was funny because my dad was a truck driver and I asked him and he said, yeah, I mean, people came up to my truck all the time and said, you know, do you want to, you know, partake in this activity? And, you know, luckily my dad didn't, uh, (laughs) 
you know, loves my mom, I guess, but um, <laughs> yeah, that stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely, they, they're targets and it's unfortunate that Connecticut really doesn't protect these people. And, you know, you can serve up to a year in prison and you could get a $2,000 fine for partaking in prostitution. So it's not, it, it's just unfortunate. I really, and I feel bad for the family members. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to find out more about, about these cases. And if I do become a cop, which I'm working towards right now, and I, you know, could somehow have access to certain data databases, I would love to uh, look into some of these things. But do you think you've gone as far as you can with your civilian status at this point? Uh, no, I think I didn't realize how much. Well, I didn't realize you have to pay for certain access. It makes sense. And I, sh I was a little bit, you know, being, you know, stupid by thinking everything was going to be free. But, uh, you know, Ancestry.com actually gives you access to criminal records, you know, uh, addresses, a lot of background information. I've been thinking about, you know, paying for it. But then I thought to myself, a lot of the people I'm looking into, you know, I don't know if Ancestry.com would have their DNA just because, you know, 80s, 90s. But, you know, getting access to the, you know, Hartford Current, you know, paying, you know, $8 a month gave me access to so much stuff. And, you know, then that's only access to one newspaper. So I'm sure I could find more stuff. And, you know, I, you know, I really hope viewers listen to this and, you know, somehow someone thinks, oh, you know, I knew someone who might have known someone around that time because, women who live near each other or especially pregnant women, they had to have friends, you know, they had to have people who knew, you know, people they hung out with. And, you know, what sucks about this time is that, you know, people probably didn't want to get people in trouble. I mean, if you are partaking in sex work, you don't want the police to know, you don't want your neighbors to know cold cases over time, people, you might divorce someone, you might, you know, fall out of friendships, you might just feel less guilty. and sometimes time is actually good because you're further from the crime and you feel maybe better about talking about it. Um, and that's sometimes all it takes is just one, one person to, you know, come forward after years and just give one little detail and it could open up a whole case. Yeah. Um, if anybody has any information, do they contact the Harvard police department? Yes. Yes. Um, I would actually utilize also the Connecticut.gov, um, they have a bunch of people who are working cold cases too. I think there's a number, but um, yeah, definitely the Hartford PD and, you know, the cold case website that these women are on would be awesome. Um, and, you know, anything, anything could help. Um, and you know what, if you were involved in, you know, sex work or drugs, like, well, I think us three are the most, you know, I understand like sociology was like the best degree ever. It just, you know, explained to me why people, you know, what happens and like why people might become drug acts. And, you know, you know, no one walks in these people's shoes. No one knows what they've been through. And, um, you know, a tough part about being a mental health counselor for me was to see the huge amount of sexual abuse that um, children went through. And to just know that a lot of these kids were going through such you know, bad situations. And luckily they had parents that could afford to take them to a residential center and give them help. And you think about all the kids that 
didn't get that uh, a chance, you know, and then, you know, they end up, you know, doing things because they don't know what else to do. Um, so, you know, I don't want anyone to feel ashamed to come forward um, because, you know what, you could be saving, you know, making a family have closure. And that's, you know, I feel bad. For, I feel so bad for these families. I, I do too. I know Chloe does too. She's nodding. Yes. It's, it's a really important thing to kind of just put out there. If, if something like this has happened to you, you know, you can, you can tell someone that you trust, you can kind of move forward in the situation. And like you said, maybe even help someone else in your situation as well. Well, we thank you, Tori, so, so, so much. Yeah, yeah, man. It was awesome being on here. I am so happy to talk about all the stuff I researched. And uh, you guys are doing great. I love I love what you do, man. It's awesome. And I, I think it's great to bring attention to cold cases, missing people. I mean, uh, it, if anyone has just researched missing people and cold cases, it's just, it's, it's nonstop. I mean, I, I, I actually started looking at missing people cases, and it's just it's so heartbreaking. Uh, oh my God. But yeah, I mean, it's great what you guys do. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been awesome. Yes. And thank you for all the work that you've done in these cases. Yep. We thank you for your time and your skills and your dedication. You are going to be awesome as a police officer. I just know it. people need people like you. Thank you so much.